I dreamed a dream in time gone by When hope was high and life worth living I dreamed that love would never die I dreamed that God would be forgiving And I was young and unafraid And dreams were made and used and wasted There was no ransom to be paid No song unsung, no wine unwasted The tigers come at night With their voices soft as thunder As they tear your hope apart And they turn your dream to shame recognize that song? Pontine from Les Mis. You know what was neat? Um, is uh, as he was singing that, I heard everyone start to sing along with him. 
And I was thinking that that's so appropriate because so oftentimes we all have a way of saying that in different ways and, and in different words that that dream feels killed in us, that life wasn't supposed to be like this. If you remember last week, we, we began the sermon last week saying those exact words that uh, and, we, and we're looking at the passages that come from Isaiah that oftentimes are read during Christmas time, and we're trying to appreciate and understand the context in which those passages came to us and come to us still. If you remember, we talked about Israel as a people and how they, at the time in which Isaiah was proclaiming his message, they were a divided people between north and south, Israel and Judah in the north, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And in fact, Israel had been conquered by Assyria and the south, Judah was under intense pressure by that same empire, under threat. And then later on, they, they had this, this hope, this dream of a king that would come and rescue them, fight for them on their behalf, put everything back to rights. And Judah, um, ultimately, that dream at first seemed like it had been killed in them because another empire comes in and Babylon and conquers their land and takes them into exile. But we, we get, began to explore the, the fact that through that threat and through that move to exile and then all, the hope of return, God was um, creating and birthing a new dream within them that a king would come, but he would look so different than what they had initially anticipated, expected. And we saw that that king that came was the servant the one who, the Lord who, who comes as a servant, who gives himself up, divests himself of power, fights on their behalf, but does it through humility and obedience. This morning, we're going to continue these themes. We're going to continue to look at the threats that come and assault us on all sides, but instead of looking at the threats that are, are, are on the external, in our external world, we're going to look at the threat that's born in our internal life. Let's pray right now. God, we pray that you would come to us now through your spirit, that you would preach to us, speak to us, give, um, send your word into our life, that we might see and perceive and, and believe that word, Jesus, born in our midst, born as the Lord made servant, the judge judged in our place. We ask this in Jesus' name, saying amen. So we'll begin by looking at Isaiah and picking up where we left off last week. And when you read the book of Isaiah and consider the context in which it's written, you recognize, yes, there are a number of threats that are being brought to and against God's people during that time. But perhaps the most dangerous threat was one that was being born within them and was in, in fact coming from God. For God, you cannot escape this fact that God, when he was addressing his own people, said a whole lot of no. In fact, he brought a whole lot of judgment against his own people. Judgment against the very people that were called to be his own. He said no again and again. In fact, he begins that way by saying no. In Isaiah chapter, or verse 1, or chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, God says through his prophet, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now he's talking to Israel, his own people, and he's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. 
When you come to appear before me, who has required you of this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assemblies. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Do you hear the no that God says to all of Israel in their worship? And then later on, he says this in Isaiah 1, verses 21 through 23, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. When we read the book of Isaiah and we hear his message to God's people, it's hard to get away from the troubling yet obvious fact that God, God's word to his own people is often and maybe predominantly a word that says no. It's a word of judgment. What's going on here? What's God judging? Well, it seems to me that God is judging at first, of course, their false worship. For somehow, Israel had fallen into the trap that they felt like that they, if they, as long as they check all the boxes of appropriate worship, if they offer the right sacrifices, if they burn the right incenses, if they celebrate the right festivals, then God, they would be right with God, right? And God says no to that. He says, no, your worship is false because it doesn't match your behavior. I see no evidence of your love for me in what you do. And so no matter how much you offer the, all the right sacrifices and incenses and, and um, festivals, celebrate the right festivals, your heart is still far from me. And then he says, in fact, that's the deeper problem. Your heart has become wayward. It has fled. It has run away from you. You who were to be my bride, my faithful bride, you've become a whore. You've chased after all these other false husbands. Again and again and again, God says, no. Now, what's all that about? Gosh, doesn't that seem a little harsh? I mean, this is his own people that he's speaking to. How do we understand God's judgment? What is all this judgment about? I, want, I think that we can argue that when we look at uh, Isaiah's witness, we realize if we spend a little bit more attention, pay, uh, pay closer attention, that God's judgment, his word of judgment is in fact our only hope. Now this may seem crazy to us because we, like the people of Israel, have had a tendency to understand judgment as equivalent with condemnation. That God, when God judges, that means he's, he's speaking a word of judgment, not just judgment, but condemnation. In fact, it's for the sake of destruction. 
And how can that be a hopeful message, right? Why would God, a God of love, judge so much? Isaiah presents the case that God's judgment is not strictly about condemnation or destruction. But when God says no, it's because it's our only hope. If left to our own devices, we are hopeless. So, in Isaiah's own words, Isaiah 6, 9 says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. In other words, if we keep on in our current state that we are hopeless to change our very heart, what's going on on the insides. Yes, there may be threats that are happening externally to us, but the deeper and more profound threat is the one born within us. A faithless heart, a a wayward heart, a heart that cannot see and does not hear. We need a heart, we need to be woken up by God's word of no, his judgment. We need to have an experience where our eyes are opened, the eyes of our heart might see God as he really is and shake us from our complacency. So Isaiah, um, we need an experience like the prophet Isaiah himself, who in recounting the story of his own calling, his own conversion to the prophetic ministry says this in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. On our own, confronted with the holiness and the glory of God, we are hopeless, for we are people of unclean lips, living in a land that is unclean. And God speaks a word of judgment to make us realize this fact, this unsettling and troubling fact. So God's judgment, and what, but what God is up to is that his judgment is not strictly or simply condemnation or a word of of destruction. But if you read closely, you begin to realize God's word, his no, is a word that purifies. Judgment is for the sake of purification. So, remember what um, God said about his people, how they turned false as a city and become wayward? Listen to what falls right after that. Isaiah 1, 24 through 26 Therefore the Lord declares the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. And again, he's talking about his own people. 
I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Do you see how he begins to purify them with his judgment? Or listen to Isaiah the prophet, his own experience. Just after he has seen the God in his glory on his throne of judgment, he says this, Isaiah 6, verse 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that, has t- that, had taken, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, those unclean lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So when God, if we take this seriously, when God speaks a word of no, a word of judgment on his people, what's he doing? Is he just condemning or is he purifying? Where he's burning up all that is unclean, all the sin that is in our own life. God's word of judgment, then, is in fact grace. Grace, it's our only hope. And if, that, and if grace is true, then what we need to begin to understand is grace burns. Burns. One of my favorite books of all time, Les, Mis, Les Miserables, by Victor Hugo. What I love, and it was later popularized, more recently popularized in... Um, the musical that became an instant classic, right? And then just, a, was it last year or two years ago, on Christmas Day, I believe, it came out as a movie, right? On Christmas Day. What I love about this movie, the story that is told by Hugo, is how all those characters in it are wrestling with these themes of judgment and grace. And coming to terms was with what they mean for, for themselves in their own life. So the protagonist... Um, Jean Valjean. His story is, uh, begins as he's just gotten out of prison, what he believes wrongly imprisoned for trying to help his own family. And he's just been paroled and he looks out at the world that he is now journeying through and he understands that it is a threatening world, a world that is against him. It's the world's fault that he's in the condition that he's in as he goes from home to home, city to city, all throughout France and again and again experiences rejection and being turned away. And just when he's given up all hope, lonely, hungry, on his last leg he encounters an abbot, and the abbot shows mercy upon him, provides grace to him through the form of inviting him into his own home. And there, in his own home, he is is given food, the abbot gives him food and a place to sleep and treats him like a human being once again. Yet as the story unfolds, Valjean returns that kindness, that grace with cruelty, for he looks after his own self and his own well-being, and he takes the silver that was housed in that abbey, and he flees 
looking after his own interests, only to be caught by the authorities who bring him back to the abbot to receive judgment, justice, as a thief. And the abbot, lo and behold, returns grace with more grace. Grace upon grace. He, in fact, says to the lie that Valjean had said to the authorities that the abbot had given him all that silver. He says, of course, and actually, Valjean, how could you leave the best, the most expensive item, these two candlesticks, that are these silver candlesticks? And those candlesticks re- re- represented grace upon grace. And so Valjean is set free by the gracious act of this abbot. And that experience of grace burns him deep to the core. Watch his response to that grace. What have I done, sweet Jesus? What have I done? Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. Have I fallen so far and is the hour so late? that nothing remains but the cry of my hate, the cries in the dark that nobody hears, here where I stand at the turning of the years. If there's another way to go, I missed it 20 long years ago. My life was a war that could never be won. They gave me a number and they murdered Valjean when they chained me and left me for dead, just for stealing a mouthful of bread. Did I allow this man to touch my soul and teach me love? He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claims for God above. Can such things be? For I had come to hate the world. That always hated me. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. This is all I have lived for. This is all I am now. One word from him, and I'd be back. Beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I had a soul. How does he know what spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? I am reaching, but I fall. And the night is closing in as I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin. I'll escape now from that world. On the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now under the sorry 
you see how grace burns? Because what grace does is it exposes all our false narratives that we tell about ourselves and about the world, that it's someone else's fault for the condition that our life finds itself in. Grace exposes us, opens our eyes to the reality and the condition of our own false hearts, our own wayward hearts and inclinations. And so when Valjean encounters that, uh, that experience of grace, grace upon grace, he begins to have to wrestle with the judgment that grace exists and what it looks like to live a life under that judgment of grace and to pursue a different way, a different way than anything he's ever known before. God's judgment is grace and grace is our only hope, and it exposes us for who we truly are, the crookedness of our own little hearts. And yet, when we seek to do justly, to wash ourselves, make ourselves clean, our, the history of our life, the history, in fact, of Isaiah the prophet, the history of Israel, the history of the whole world tells us that we are of no hope. There is no hope for us. We are falling headlong into destruction, oblivion, death. And every attempt on our own behalf to justify our lives, to put ourselves back to rights, to fix our own wayward and false heart only seems to exacerbate the issue, only creates more dissonance within us, only creates a deeper hopelessness for us, fortunately for us, that Isaiah doesn't treat just simply with the history of the prophet or the history of his people or the history of the world. For as we looked at last week, Isaiah finally and ultimately treats and deals with the history of the incarnation, that God in Christ was coming into the world and reconciling it to himself. That God in Christ was taking the world's lost cause and making it his own. And he, he, he came as a servant and he suffered on our behalf and that vicarious suffering for our sake is what heals us. Listen to Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What is going on here? What is this passage from Isaiah speaking of? What is it identifying that God is willing to do? Well, put simply and plainly, God chooses in Christ to identify himself with us. This is more than just simply substitution, taking our place. It's representation, becoming, identifying himself with us, so much so that he becomes us. He takes our own lost condition upon himself. The judge of the universe His judgment is to be judged in our place. That from the foundation of the world, God chooses to be born a man, a part of sinful man, rebellious Israel, become a child of Israel. And as that man born into the world, he becomes the man, the man who represents us before the throne of judgment. It's identification, it's representation. And think about what that means. That the God who moves towards us, the God who comes to our aid, to our rescue, to the rescue of his own fallen creation, and does it unreservedly, without reservation. He does not hold back anything. He does not play act. He does not say, I will stand in their behalf, but I will still remain who I am. He says, I will become who I truly am by taking on all our sin. And that's why Paul can then later say, he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now think about that. Think of what the incarnation then means. Think of what we say when we talk about Christmas. That God identified himself with his creation so much so that he he took upon all shame and guilt and all our lost cause and was willing to carry it to completion. Isn't this the dream that we all long for, that when we are at our wit's end, at our most lost place, that when we are beyond ourselves and we cannot fix our circumstances, don't we dream for one to come and to take our cause and that lost cause and make it his own? That's what I love about the story of Les Mis. One of my favorite scenes is with Fontaine who has fallen into a place of such disrepute that she has begun to, she's played the role of the whore. She's become gone so far as to sell herself to other men in an attempt to rescue and save her own life and the life of her child. And when she's at her very lowest, one enters into her life 
And he does this. The child who sorely needs me, please, monsieur, she's got that heart. Holy God, is there no mercy? If I go to jail, she'll die. I have heard such protestations every day for 20 years. Let's have no more explanations. Save your breath, save your tears. Honest work, just reward. That's the way to please the Lord. A moment of your time, Javert. I do believe this woman's tale. Monsieur Le Maire. You've done your duty. Let her be. She needs a doctor, not a jail. Monsieur Le Maire. Where will she end? This child without a friend. I've seen your face before. Show me some way to help you. How have you come to grief in such a place as this? Monsieur, don't mock me now, I pray. It's hard enough I've lost my bride. You let your foreman send me away. Yes, you were there and turned aside. I never did no wrong. True, what I've done. My daughter's cost is night. To an innocent soul. If there's a God above. Had I only known then. He'd let me die instead. In his name. My task has just begun. I will take her to the hospital. Monsieur Le Maire. Where is your child? With an innkeeper and all I will send for her immediately. I will see it done. If the central theme that defines Les Mis is their, the characters wrestling with the judgment that is grace, the central act that drives the whole plot of the rest of the story is this experience in which Valjean takes up Fontaine's lost cause and makes it his own to the point where he pays her debt to the Denardiers, right? He makes her own child his own. He lives a life from this point forward in honor of her own lost life. And that plot defined by that act is the plot that runs through the whole witness of Scripture. Why would God do this? Why would he take our lost cause and make it his own? Why would he suffer in our stead? Why would he allow himself to be stricken and smitten? Well, as Michael said at our um, Bible study this week in preparation for this sermon, Michael had this great insight. God is smitten for us because he is smitten with us. That at the deep place of God at the heart, at his very, in his very heart, is this profound love, this profound and deep yes. 
And from all eternity, God has been saying yes to his creation. And that is why he enters into the world. That's why he draws near to us, that he's not content to be God apart from us or away from us. He would not just stand by and watch us in our fallen plight. He must, and by definition, by his own free will, enter into our circumstance and make our cause his own. That he says yes. This, and his dream, the dream from all eternity is that we would come to realize his heart for us, that we would see it for what it is, that we would not just see our own circumstances and our own conditions and the threats that exist not only in the world, but the threat that it bubbles up from within our own, our own heart, our own internal life, but we will see that God loves us and he loves us so much that he makes our own internal world his own. And that his judgment is to be judged in our own place. Or to put it another way, what do you long for? Right? One of my, not just what do you dream, but what do you long for in your deep places? One of my favorite theologians of all time said this. Do you ever long for love? Wish this world was full of love? Wish that people loved love? See, maybe it's working. Maybe God is working and God is love and this is good news. Now, quoting Jesus, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people unto myself, said Jesus, who is God. Perhaps he won't fail. Perhaps one day you'll hear his voice and see him standing before you and you won't run in terror of his glory. You'll say yes and you'll go insane with joy. Peter Hyatt said this. And he's right. Because the dream that we all have is that one day we will see Jesus, God in Christ as he really is in all his glory, and we will not be afraid, for we will know his love. We will have heard his deep and everlasting and eternal yes spoken from the throne of heaven, the judgment seat of all eternity. His yes to us, and that yes will elicit in us a response that says yes. Yes to you, God. Yes to your love. Yes to you coming into my life and replacing my fallen and wayward heart. And so we gather this, e this morning to celebrate that yes. Around the table of his heart, his love, where he replaces our faithlessness with his faithfulness. He replaces our wayward longings with his righteousness. And so I invite you to come to this table and experience his love poured out for you in Jesus, who on the night he was betrayed, took bread and having blessed it and given thanks for it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup 
said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this, all of you, in my name. Friends, this table is the table of God's judgment. His no said to all human sin. But as my other favorite theologian says, God's no is always the husk of his yes. A deep and profound yes to all human beings who've been found and represented by the man, Jesus Christ. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. I invite you to come to the table, experience his judgment in your life, and know that it is grace in Jesus' name. So, um, I guess what we're saying today is, do you see the Lord seated on his throne, lifted up, exalted? Where he has taken our lost cause, made it his own, and is willing to see it done, carry it to completion, say, it is finished. It's grace. And that's what we're called to preach here at the sanctuary. I was thinking about this with Peter's... um, Heart attack, that might be scary at first, but we, you know, we always talk about how God is able to use all kinds of circumstances to create good out of them. And maybe this, the good that can come from these last couple weeks is maybe we as a church begin to own the message that we're called to preach here, right? This gracious word. And if anyone ever tells you that we don't take judgment and justice seriously, don't listen, We just know what that judgment really is. It's love. It's saving grace. It's Jesus. It's Christmas. So, go forward from this place ready and willing to give an answer to all the concerns of the world. Tell people of God's verdict pronounced on the whole world. And that verdict is yes. And as you go, know that the, um, God is always better than you thought. The love of Jesus is deeper than you know. And the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. Amen?